Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 105th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Taking a small break from our Roman Empire series, I'm once again joined by Brett, who is going to help me discuss the importance of countries having robust constitutions and how the events of January 6th are both similar and different to past historical events. A few things to consider are when the founding fathers devised the constitution, one of the explicit reasons was to create a robust document that would prevent the rise of a totalitarian leader from hijacking the nation. With George Washington explaining that one of the reasons he chose to attend the Constitutional Convention was to prevent, quote, some aspiring demagogue who will not consult the interests of the country so much as his own ambitious views. For example, the idea of having three branches of government or checks and balances originated with the French philosopher and judge Baron de Montesquieu. Interestingly enough, Montesquieu himself was a student of the Roman Empire and believed that nothing happens by chance and wrote, if the chance of one battle, that is a particular cause has brought a state to ruin, some general cause made it necessary for that state to perish from a single battle. In other words, we tend to look at simply the actors involved rather than the general trend of humanity when we try and explain events. Additionally, Montesquieu writes that if it wasn't Caesar and Pompey that had risen up to usurp the Republic, someone else would have come along and done so. The founders were extremely methodical in the way they drafted our constitution, basing their decisions not on the talking points of the day, but rather long studied historical trends dating back to the ancient Greeks. While some of us see the events of January 6th as being the failure of the constitution, the fact that Congress was able to reconvene in less than five hours and immediately recommence with the counting of the electoral votes is a testament to that document. A smooth transition of power will occur on January 20th. However, to understand why exactly that is, Brett and I will be discussing what precisely makes America different than other nations before it. Brett, for the majority of our series together, we've been looking at a lot of the parallels between Rome and the United States. However, I feel in, in light of recent events, perhaps it might be a good idea to discuss some of the ways that we are different. Absolutely. Sure. That's, that sounds good. So I think that one of the things that we have to always consider, and, and like I said, um, when I started the Roman series Empire with the Roman Empire series with you, I did see a lot of striking parallels. And I think that my fears have actually come true in some regard on January 6th, right? Like we are, we are moving away from civility, but I do wanna also say on the other hand though, we do have the benefit of 20, 2021, I suppose, hindsight. We know what has happened in the past and thus, I think we're kind of in a different state than we were uh, that the ancient Romans found themselves in. Absolutely, Aaron. Our founding fathers, when they were conceiving of the, you know, the governmental structure that would eventually become the United States, they based a lot of the the mechanisms and, and tools for governing on not Greek democracy, but Roman democracy. The the Roman leader Cincinnatus is the origin of our our own city Cincinnati. Many 
uh, Federalist Papers and Anti-Federalist Papers were written under pseudonyms with Roman emperor names like Agrippa and uh, Caesar. It's, it's woven pretty deeply into the fabric of our country. Uh, and so because of that, obviously, they took what they could, but also presumably they changed what they had to for what at the time would have been modern issues. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's important to understand that maybe in America today, we've forgotten about what happened during the Roman Empire, but our our founding fathers knew well, were well aware of, of Rome. The book that you uh, refer to uh, by Gibbons, what year was that written in? Uh, it was written in 1776. I believe the only interesting thing that happened that year, if my memory <laughs> serves correctly. Exactly. So I, I think it's important to know that the founding fathers, you know, were, you know, some of them were versed in Greek. Many of them were versed in Latin. Um, so they were able to actually not not only read about what happened in Rome, but actually read it in the original language uh, in which it happened in. And I think that they they were well aware of all of the pitfalls. They were well aware because as we've discussed previously on this program, you know, Caesar was a demagogue. He he absolutely was. He he know how to he know he knew how to rile people's passions. And I think that the Enlightenment thinkers and I think that the founding fathers were well aware of these techniques. And they kind of were well aware that the average person may not be as studious in like understanding uh, you know, may not be as studious in understanding historical trends, but they did. And that's kind of why they gave us our constitution. And I think in many respects, our constitution differs from that of, of Rome, let's say, is because of all of these multiple checks that you have. You know, a lot of people complain that Amer American democracy is too uh, slow, it's too lethargic, it takes forever to get things done. But these are safeguards, you know, like a lot of people who complain, like, I just want things to run quickly. Well, these safeguards that we have in a democracy, as, as annoying as they are at times, they're also there to protect us. Something interesting to consider is that even though the United States as a whole is one of the youngest countries in the world, or one, let's say one of the youngest developed countries in the world, it's a young country compared to what people normally compare it to in Europe and, and Asia. So even though it's one of the younger countries, it's actually one of the oldest still functioning democracies in the world. A lot of other countries have come along since then, like England and Spain and Portugal, and I could go on and on and on, <laughs> to be democracies. But don't forget, America was first. We're the first modern democracy. So a lot of things that are in our constitution have been revised in other people's constitutions by now. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I think that that, that that is very true. And I think that our constitution, you know, is like we do have the amendment process, but it's a very difficult process. It's not something that happens very easily. So the founders are kind of genius in that they knew that as times changed, the document may need to also change, but they made it incredibly difficult to do so. And I think that when a document becomes too easy to change, like if you make the constitution into a Google doc, well, <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 you know, whoever takes power is essentially going to run the country exactly how they, they see fit. And I think in the case of, of let's say Donald Trump, it's he, he came to power 
But I think, and this is said of every president, every president feels they can do anything until they become president and realize they can't. And, and I think that that's, that that's really a testament to our country that, you know, if we did not have such a robust constitution, who knows what may have happened? Who knows what, what things could have been suspended? But I think that the fact that a president constantly has in the back of their mind that they are not above the law. And we'll talk in a little bit about what exactly that means. I think that basically informs their decision-making, knowing that if they do step out of a certain boundary, they are subject to criminal prosecution. Yeah, I think that the, the, the wheels of government, like you said, are intentionally slow because they things need to be meticulous. And Things need to be done right. And I think that when you, you run into trouble when people feel like the wheels are not just slow, but immobile, or even worse, that they're slow and like moving in the wrong direction. And that's when you have grassroots campaigns to like uproot the machine because they're like, this is not moving fast enough for me. And if the machine can't accommodate my timetables, then we need a new machine. And that's where you start to run into trouble with like, you know, coups and revolutions and, and government upheaval, right? So, so I think that the, the word that comes to mind, at least in like political science terms is the responsiveness of government. I think that's a very important thing. Like, is the government responsive at all. And I think if you look at, let's say, you know, the Weimar Republic, uh, you know, the democracy that was there before the Nazis took over Germany, it was highly, it was not responsive at all, completely not, not responsive. People were um, carrying wheelbarrows, you know, of, of money because they had hyperinflation. I think the United States is different. Yes, we are slow at times. We are it's slow. It's the, the same with the czar too, right? Like yeah. ineffective and not serving the citizens properly. Yeah, exactly. Like in in, in Tsarist Russia, for example, like they they were in the midst, they were engulfed in World War One, and there were there were soldiers that were walking in the icing the icy cold freezing snow with no boots at all. That's how inefficient they were. So if you're walking around and your feet are literally uh, touching like you know 15 degree snow and ice, well. Yeah, you're going to have a, a revolt pretty darn soon. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the United States has been slow with stimulus checks. We have been slow with unemployment. But ultimately, you know, we have a lot of debate, but the stimuluses did get passed. You know, ultimately, we did act. Things did occur. It's not at a level of no response, maybe delayed response. Maybe it's not a response that is on par with other Western developed nations. And those are really fair criticisms to make, but we're not at the level where there's no, no response at all. So I think that the system is working. It just needs to be better oiled. Yeah, make no mistake. There, there are millions of people who are unemployed and suffering and, and you know, because of government inaction and, and government apathy. However, the US, Median income is still fairly high for a, a developed nation. You know, it's still around. I think last time I checked, sixty thousand dollars a year. The unemployment rate—that's household. In, that's probably household income. Yes, household. You're right. I apologize. Household income. Thank you. Um, I believe the unemployment rate is still hovering around ten to fifteen percent. These are not numbers that incite, you know, revolutions. You know, uh, Russia. Russia's poverty rate in 
during before the November Revolution was like over seventy percent. Mm-hmm. To give you some some perspective. Now that's high, and I I think that um you know as I said in my last episode, one of the most dangerous things that any any democracy faces is, and you can almost see this to a T, is your number of young unemployed men. If you look at all all revolutions, you have very large numbers of young unemployed men. And make no mistake, I've read the literature on this, America has an increasing number of young unemployed men. Uh, I read a book uh, called Men Without Work just very recently written by Harvard professors. That number is increasing. However, I don't think it's at the 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 level that would cause like an insurrection or something really drastic. It's something that we need to be mindful of. It's something that we need to be aware of. And, and I think that how we respond to these challenges in the next in the coming years is really going to be indicative of of if 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 what we have is working or if it's not working. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um people people who are are content don't don't rebel i mean i guess they do because the people who walked on the us capitol are like middle class white people who are not necessarily like starving in the streets it's it's more of like a kind of like a political thing you know they're not the reason the reason i bring up ethnicity is cuz i just want to make it like you know they're not starving they're not persecuted in this country you know like there's you'd have a hard time making an argument that the group that these people fall into don't have, if not advantages, then just a level playing field, right? So there's two types of poverty that we always want to think about. And one is absolute poverty, which none of those uh, protesters, rioters were in. None of them are in absolute poverty where if they didn't storm the Capitol, like they were going to starve to death the next, the next day. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I think though that that schism perhaps speaks to some degree of relative poverty. Yeah. They have smartphones. Yeah. They have their TikTok accounts and whatnot and all the amenities that we enjoy in the modern age that there is no hard data on this yet. But they have the FBI has been tracking where a lot of these people came from, and a lot of them do come from deindustrialized part pockets of the South. So I, I think that relative poverty can sometimes be the cause of, of some civil unrest. It's of not, course, yeah, you know. So so like you you can you you can have a, a lot of civil unrest, and I think that how we address these things is really going to is really going to determine the future because we're looking at the, the, the trends. And again, if you take a stance of complete unresponsiveness, and I, I have to say, I kind of don't like the, I've been listening, I gave it a few days now, and I'm not really liking some of the stuff that I'm hearing in the media right now, because the media is just saying, these people are dumb. They're stupid. They're morons. Like I, I keep hearing the same talking points that they're idiots. They're idiots. They're, you know, into all of this stuff on parlor and conspiracy theories. And okay, fine. We can, we can hold our nose up, but are we really, is that the responsive attitude that we need to kind of prevent something like this from happening again? And that's, that's kind of where I think the wheels of democracy need to be better oiled is how, how exactly are we responding to this contingent of people that seems to be very lost right now? Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I would. So I think it's always interesting when we lump the media in with the government. 
and we're like the government like we're like democracy needs to do a better job with with this but it's not this is not democracy this is capitalism mm-hmm. right which is not a form of government it's an economic thing and yeah the media is a is a private entity it's the the fourth estate you know the, they do th- the reason they do things is not for the betterment of people it's for the betterment of shareholders I would say that though the politicians themselves are not really speaking the language of like, what are we going to do? So I think that like the media reports what a lot of these politicians are saying. I'm not really hearing, um, I'm hearing a lot of denouncing and I'm hearing a lot of denunciations of of this. I'm not really hearing a lot of solutions from, and, and one of the things that I alluded to in my very last podcast is revamping the educational system. If we had an educational system that had that encouraged high levels of critical thought and was well disciplined well none of these people would have been taken in by conspiracy theories written on parlor at a third grade reading level like they just would not they, they, they would not have been taken in so yes like um the media is the fourth estate it's its own thing but the media is responsive to how to the messages right they're feeding off the messages of our politicians. And I think that those politicians do have within their power to change the narrative of like, let's come, let's reconcile, let's come together and let's start addressing deindustrialization. Let's start addressing poor education that's causing a lot of these things to happen. Yeah. In, in your, in your episode about exceptionalism versus mediocrity, right? Um, you talked a lot about the education system in America and how you, you, you think that it's, it's, failed the the people it's supposed to be serving right it's it do, it's not accomplishing um its goals and i would agree that in many case in many places uh it's it's not doing its job i would wonder if maybe part of the reason for that is the deregulation of schools and as you you hand over rights to the states and let them do what they want um they move away from education i i don't know why but it just seems to be that way right like um some states care more than others, mm-hmm. right? I, I think I think that you know I've worked in both charter schools and public schools in 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 my you know ten years of teaching, and what I what I think it is is really the the word that comes to mind is really just neglect. Um, I, I think that there's been a lowering of standards because you know what happens is that a bunch of kids fail, and the answer is not to kind of like put more resources or have more discipline or push them harder, or actually even put more accountability onto the parents, the answer is simply to make the standards weaker and water them down. Um, I, I've yeah, talked- That's the no child left behind thing that was instituted under Bush. It, try, it, try, it, it attempted to, but anyone, any math teacher will tell you that the algebra regions has become you know, weaker and weaker and weaker. The, the, the exam has 30, not, not to go too much into this, but like the exam has 34 questions. You only need to pass 13 random multiple choice questions to pass that thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, probability, you know, probability, it's a, that's a 35% pass. You know, you have to get, you have to have content mastery over 35% of multiple choice questions. Probability is smiling upon you. <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make here though, is that we have been in a state of neglect when it comes to our education. And if we had critical thinking skills, Brett, a lot of our politicians come to power because they rely on emotionally induced rhetoric, right? And I think that was happening in Rome quite a bit with the town criers. Um, Oh my God, this 
empire, this emperor is sleeping with this person's wife, right? We see that same level of low, lowest, uh, this lowest level rhetoric flourishing throughout our democracy. The only way that you really combat that is by teaching people critical skills, literacy, and to think at a high level. So they're like, I don't care who's sleeping with who, that's boring. And that's not addressing the fact that I don't have a job right now, right? If we had, if we had taught people to focus on the things that actually matter with critical thinking, they wouldn't be worried about some kind of conspiracy theory. Yeah, I, I think one one thing to can one thing to keep in mind here is that we we're treating right now we're treating critical thinking like it's like almost like wealth right it's like everyone wants it if you don't have it it's because either it was denied to you or yeah if you don't have it it's because it's denied to you if it was offered to you you'd take it but i don't think that critical thinking is is that i i think there are people who just legitimately don't have an interest in that and that if you gave them the tools to think critically and you gave them the tools to increase their knowledge and, and better their understanding of the world, they would just reject it. And they would be like, I don't care. Right. Now, half of me is, is somewhat inclined to agree with you, but I think people have a greater urge and that's a, the urge to be accepted segment that there is a portion of our population that I've discussed on previous podcasts that might be, incorrigible. We just cannot save them. Fair enough. I think that that's a very tiny fraction of- I'm not saying that they're un, they're beyond saving. Yeah. It, what I'm saying is, is that there will always be a percentage of every population who, because you can't force someone to learn. You can't jam knowledge down someone's throat. All you can do is present the information in front of them. And if they have the will or desire to take it in and to do what is required to learn, then they will. And the better you are at education, the easier you can make that, let's call it digestion of, of knowledge and, and thinking tools, the easier you can make that digestion. But at the end of the day, they still have to do the chewing and the swallowing. Okay, I, I, I hear you on that. But let's, let's think of our high school diploma for a second here. If somebody did not have a high school diploma, right, we would kind of think, like just just statistics right now, I think over 92% of Americans have high school diplomas. And okay. if you bumped into someone who did not have a high school diploma, there would be some kind of social, you kind of look down upon them. There'd be some kind of social, like, come on, man, get your act together. So my argument is, is that if you increase the level of rigor and you increase the level of standards that you have to exert, you have to be able to write an essay that contains a higher degree of critical thinking. If you made that mm -hmm. the bar to be allowed as a part of civil society, well, those people may not want to readily digest critical thinking, but now they don't really have a choice. You're not passing. We will fail you five different times. Like you will not move on to 11th grade until you write this essay in a more sophisticated manner with some degree of proper grammar. If we made the bar that much higher, I actually believe people would meet that higher bar, whether they want to or whether they don't want to. I think the resistance is that it's just not a popular thing to do right now. Yeah, um, that's probably true. I think you'd get some mix of the people who, I think you'd get some mix of lower graduation rates and and the people who do graduate being more, having a higher efficacy in kind of navigating the world around them critically. 
because I, I think that you see this in France. You know, when I've talked to my colleagues who teach in France, the standards are way, way higher there. And, and in, in China, you know, uh, I talk with my girlfriend, Yi, way higher in China. You know, they're doing way much more complicated. And people, people overwhelmingly, they don't just drop out. They actually meet that standard. They meet the standard that is put before them. And I, I think that you can produce a more educated citizenry. I'm not saying everyone is going to be saved by this, but I think that if that's the stand, if the standard of our populace is that much higher, well, you're gonna, you're not gonna see as much conspiracy theories and and sort of thoughts that kind of derive fr from the lowest basest emotional desires within us. Okay, so you think that the fix for the fix for this, the like rampant disinformation is to improve people, is to generally improve everyone's ability to process information in the first place. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that makes sense. I I wonder though if making high school more difficult would accomplish that or if it would just drive away more people from because there'll always be a counterculture. I think that the I think that you're probably right, but I also think that we as New Yorkers kind of, we have a, a very good school system, very good public schools in New York. And it's easy for us to be like, just make it harder. We can handle it. But like the fact is you either, if it's federally regulated, then if you bring everyone up to our speed, you're going to lose a lot of people in states that maybe don't have as rigorous schooling as we do right now. And if you deregulate it and you're like, let the states do it so New York can pull ahead on its own, then those other states are going to just, you know, they're going to totally check out. Well, so, I, I think I, I, I think that all of this does vary from state to state. I, I think different states have different capacities and different um, abilities to handle this problem. And all of this stuff needs to be extremely gradual, right? We don't go from answering 13 random multiple choice algebra questions to learning calculus the next day. That, that's just, just that's not, that's not, that's not the progression here, but we got to start making it, we, we got to start tightening it up gradual and that 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 gradualness might be different um you know what what's what's gradual for new york might be different than what's gradual for florida fair enough okay what i do think is the biggest problem with 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 acts like the no child left behind act and and, and subsequent legislation is they said okay here's some higher standards but then the same old tricks were played where kids that could not read were still passed they were still smuggled through and that's that's kind of where the danger is is that we 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 it's not it's not in the higher standards themselves it's all of the loopholes it's all of the corruption that allow and and then and then the gradual weakening of standards that allows this to happen there there has there there might be a period of time where we just have to fail you know, there, there might come a point where 50% of students don't pass 11th grade and then they and they spend, you know, another year in school. We have to actually just be prepared for that. If we really want to fix this problem, we have to be like, no, even if 50% of people do not pass high school, that is becoming the new standard. That is that, that, that this is the new standard. It doesn't matter how many people are failing. We are not going to give up until people rise to the occasion. And I think they will. When they know that passing high school is what separates them from getting a job and having some form of, of uh, middle-class livelihood, they'll get smarter. 
they, they will follow that carrot and they will start writing better essays. They will start critically thinking and using their noggin. I think, I think we were here, we were at this level once before. I think other countries are at this level. It's totally possible. It's 100% possible. It's funny that you bring that up. Um, the United States has one of the things that makes the United States unique and let's say effective in, on the world stage is it's like total unflinching devotion to just like pumping out mediocre or not even mediocre. Let's just say like they, they favor graduation over we favor graduation over, like you said, like actually learning and whatever. And it's, it's in the past, it's been useful. There's a phrase that I really like, which is quantity has a quality all its own. That's true in the United States. If you look back to like World War II, uh, one of the things that made the United States such a powerhouse during that war, especially in the Pacific, was while the Japanese were priding themselves on having the greatest fighter pilots the world had ever seen, while it was priding itself on having the greatest cruisers and carriers the world has ever seen, the, um, the, the, the trainers, the professors, I don't think they're called professors, flight instructors, the flight instructors of the, uh, the Kido Butai, which would be like the Japanese like main carrier fleet, would pride themselves on how few pilots they produced every year. Like they would be like, like, it's almost like it's like a cliche now where they'd be like, you know, this professor's, you know, really good because only like 1% of his students actually pass, which means the ones that pass are like the cream of the crop, most advanced, best they could be. Whereas the U.S. was just like, you have a pulse, you have two arms, congratulations, you're a fighter pilot. Exactly. No, I think that's, that exactly is the problem that we're facing is that we're, we're, we're giving people uh, diplomas, degrees, and so forth without actually really knowing what's in their noggin. Right. So in the case of, in the case of making those individual people better at critical thinking or better at, like, like I said before, like exploring the world around them critically, that it's not good. But in a, a more global sense, in a more community sense, just increasing the workforce and getting as many people out and working as quickly as possible is better. And what we found in World War II was it made us deadly effective in warfare because, yes, there, the, the one Japanese pilot is worth, you know, three American pilots. Mm-hmm. But we outnumbered them 10 to 1, right? So, you know, like I said, quantity is quality all its own, Aaron. So. But, but, here's, no, but here's the thing, though. I, I think that in wartime emergencies, fantastic, okay? You need, you need fighter pilots immediately. But we're in a different type of warfare, Brett, right now. We're in an information kind of warfare. And if we've got done people in this information warfare, we're going to lose. This is not, this is not like a, uh, a short battle where we just need bodies. And I think, I think any, you know, like, I think maybe uh, firing a gun and so forth, maybe you can have like an expedited uh, route to training people to fire a gun and so forth in, in emergencies. But the warfare that we're fighting right now is one of intelligence. This is what we were involved in intellectual warfare. And in order to engage in intellectual warfare, you need 
intellectual soldiers. You need you you need people that are in our workforce that are highly competent, sophisticated, and intelligent. And if we're not producing that, it's only a matter of time before another nation that is producing citizens such as that it takes over. It's it's really there, there's a great book that was written 19, uh, I think 1982 or 1984 called uh, A Nation at Risk that actually said the weakening and softening of the American mind and of American standards is actually a global security risk. It's a, it's a security risk to our nation. No, I agree with you. I, I, was, I was simply giving a, a perspective of how this mindset has helped us in the past, but I agree with you right now um, that's not what we need as we move and not just in 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 politics or government, but just in general, as we move into the future, quantity of human manpower is becoming less important. Yes. Right? Things are becoming automated. Uh, computer systems are taking over the roles that many people run. And as such, it's becoming less important to just like throw bodies at a problem. Exactly, right. If you have like a um, 100 people that work in retail, and you just, you know, what good are they when you need one person to program the computer, right? That for you know, it's, it's like, bodies does not equal, you know, maybe in ancient times, maybe just throwing a huge army at something could fix the problem. But now it, it's like we need, you need to have very, very skilled people in order in order that are really leading the charge here. I think historically, like, you know, people becoming unemployed, people's quality of life declining are all things that like lead to this like kind of disenfranchisement that let's say radicalizes, right? Because that's what these people are is they're radicals um, mm -hmm. for better or for worse, right? And, but I don't know if just making them smarter would necessarily fix the problem here because they're angry and it takes a non-trivial amount of not just intelligence and critical thinking, but self-control mm -hmm. to like put those emotions aside and do things for people that are actively making your life worse for the greater good. Okay, you know? I, this is a great point. And I, I actually kind of want to steer the conversation back to demagoguery because uh, I, I think that's the important point here. So I think though, that when you become more intelligent and as, you know, we have this idea, like when I go to, it, it's funny, when I roam the halls, it's been, it's been like a year and a half since because of, because of COVID, you know, when I roam the halls of my like grad school, I noticed that nobody there is really emotional. No one there is shouting. No one there is yelling. There isn't like, everyone is very calm. And when people disagree with one another, they sit down and they long wonderful, intelligent discussions about these problems. So I, I think that there is a correlation between education and maybe by, you know, and then intelligence and emotional regulation. I actually think the two go hand in hand in hand because when you don't have any education whatsoever, anyone that pokes you is going to, to basically call you to action. And in my last episode, I said a small two-sentence tweet in broken English has called people to action. Let's just think about that for a second, right? Their emotions become inflamed by two sentences of broken English. Well, if you had uh, a citizenry that was more educated, they would see those two sentences and be like, this is two sentences of broken English that have no data, that have no empirical facts, that have no nuanced thought, uh, delete, 
unfollow, right? So my, 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 my thing is, is that when you actually, and, and this goes back even to Socrates, who said that society's ills basically stem from ignorance. They stem from people not pursuing knowledge actively. And I, I think Socrates is right here. If people just, I'm not saying we're ever going to be perfect. I'm not saying that like a grad school student is the embodiment of perfection. No, no, no. I'm not saying I'm not saying that that is the case, but what I am saying is that that is in the closer to the direction of perfection, where it's like my my constant pursuit of knowledge causes me to regulate my emotions because my emotions are getting in the way of pursuing knowledge. I think that what you're saying is is true. I think that the the like people who who are pursuing information are generally less susceptible to this kind of, um, I don't want to say brainwashing because they're not brainwashed, but being led astray, I guess. Um, but I wonder, like you said, that it's never going to be perfect is, are we at a point of diminishing returns where people, because I, the truth is, is that I have friends who are college educated, Aaron, who are smart on pretty much everything except for this, right? Mm -hmm. I have friends who 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 are literal judges who believe that the election was a fraud. Okay, you know? uh, that that first off, you've just uh, really scared me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you have you have uh, that that Welcome is to my nightmare. So yeah, that, that that is highly frightening to know that someone went through. Uh, four years of law college, school. three years of law school, um, worked for considerable amounts of years as an attorney, and then became a judge and believes that that is the case. I, I, I Here's the interesting thing about um, the brain is that when you stop using it, it gets weaker. It actually is not static. IQ is not something that is, is necessarily static throughout your duration. So you might actually be smarter during law school, um, but then if your job becomes easier, you start losing brain cells and, and you start losing. I'm not, I'm not saying you're going to become a complete dullard. Okay. You don't forget everything, but uh, what happens, you get less sharp. Yeah. You, you get, still... you get less sharp, man. And, and it's, it's, it's like, it's the same thing. It's like, let's say you're 23 years old and you work out seven days a week. You're going to be in great shape, but if you're 42 and you've stopped and you haven't been to the gym in 15 years, you're going to become overweight and you're eating candy all day. So I, I think it might be the same thing with your, your judge friend over there is that maybe if I met him when he was in law school, boy, oh boy, was he LSAT sharp, you know, and, and then maybe somewhere along the line and that's that's like kind of the importance of having rigor even as you're getting older there needs to be some kind of rigorous mental exercises that we're doing so that you constantly remain sharp at all at all at all at all points i think doctors have this because doctors actually have to recertify their credentials i don't know how many is it five years i, I forgot offhand but they they basically have to take uh, they have to, they're retested every five or 10 years. I don't remember how much. So this way you don't have a uh, 85 year old doctor who has forgotten everything or hasn't kept up to date with their medical knowledge. I think there's a certain amount of professional hours that they need to perform in order to make sure that they're still competent. Absolutely. I think something to also consider here is that there are psychological biases and psychological, like I'll call them failures that we are all susceptible to from from you me the the lowest of the dullards to the most intelligent of the geniuses you know and 
these these psychological biases like the confirmation bias the appeal to authority you know these are things that anyone can fall for and it doesn't matter how smart you are and the, the people who are trying to manipulate us whoever they may be i'm not speaking about a specific kind of like you know shadow organization but i'm just saying anyone in anyone's life who's trying to make you act against your own interests via you know social coercion they know this, right? And they will employ these tools. They will, they will, one of my favorite ones is the confirmation bias, or not the confirmation bias, the appeal to authority, where people will be like, you know, the election was rigged. You can trust this person. They're a neurosurgeon. And you'll be like, <laughs> well, great. What does neurosurgery have to do with poli sci? Do you, have you ever even been in a poli sci classroom? Do you even know who the president of the United States is right now? Uh, well, no, I don't. But I, you know, studied in med school for 12 years. It's like, okay. Well, great, but that means you're as informed as I am in this situation. But that's not the way it works normally. People will, you know, they'll submit to that kind of authority, right? Now, okay, I think there's two ways to combat this. One is that everybody in this world needs to, to first, you know, like Socrates says, admit that they are largely ignorant about a lot of stuff. And I largely admit that about myself. That's the premise of this show is that I largely do not know a lot of things. And when someone, you know, when someone with authority speaks about something, I kind of shut up and listen. Like I trust that you know a lot more about Rome than I do. And that's kind of why I'm quiet. I'm like, hey, it looks like we have someone who knows a lot more. Let me kind of just quietly ask some questions and so forth. That's that's kind of a, a a humility thing that everybody needs to adapt is that fundamental humility that um, this person's more qualified to speak about science, this person's more uh, qualified to speak about political events, this person's more qualified to speak about history. So that's fundamental humility. And two, I think that if we raise the bar for critical thinking ever so much higher, people will actually be able again, it's two things. You're controlling the ego, but you're also being, you're, you're teaching the ability to be self-aware enough to be like, oh, wait a minute. It looks like I'm committing this fallacy. Oh, I'm committing this logical fallacy. Uh, let me kind of revise my thoughts or let me take a step back. And I think if you raise the bar of critical thinking, we can get there, my friend. It, it's, it's, you know, it's really, it's a long, it's, I'm not, it's a hard, long road, but I think this is what it takes to save a democracy. I would agree with you. I, I would definitely agree. I think that I wouldn't call it knowledge and I wouldn't call it learning. I would, I, the word that I like is perspective. Yeah. Perspective is what grants people the ability to see through the fog and be like, something's wrong here. Right. And perspective can come from a lot of places. Even the people who aren't cut out for a life of like rigorous um, learning people who aren't, you know, don't want to be a Rhodes scholar you could still get perspective in other ways, which is really to just like expand your horizons. I, I think that a lot of these problems come from people just like either being willfully ignorant or or afraid to just peer across the curtain and be like, what's going on on the other side? These people who I disagree with or these people who are doing things that go against my interests, you know, what are they talking about? What are they up to? Yes, yes. And, and I think that that, again, I think that the root of that problem also is that those people need to accept that they have a lot to learn, that they have not reached, like I think the people who go into parlor and subscribe to these conspiracy theories, they think that they have already reached, it's the, the Dunning-Kruger effect where they think they oh, are- definitely. Yeah, 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 they, they, they think that they have 
mastered the universe, right? They think that they're yep. masters of the universe and they know everything, but a, ba a basic level of reverence and a basic level of humility would basically allow them to realize that that's not the case, that, hey, you know, I have, you know, I have, I spent, you know, a few semesters at a community college. Let me kind of just shut up and listen to the person with a doctorate in this subject area and just listen and learn from them. And I think that's something that, you know, definitely, definitely can increase intellectual acumen is humility. Cause you can't, you can't be smart and not be humble at the same time. I actually think the two things are, 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 are related. That's why some of my smartest friends, Brett, they won't go on, on Facebook because they second guess everything they say. They're like, oh, I'm not too sure. You know, is that, am I, am I phrasing that the right way? Oh, what if someone's offended by this? So it's funny, the smartest people in our society are too darn afraid to actually say anything because they're afraid of every little sentence and every little word choice. Um, and, 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 our, and our dumbest people are just like, they don't even think twice. They just whip out the phone and type whatever the hell it is that's on the top of their mind. So I, I think we need to recalibrate the balance. I, I would agree, Aaron. I would agree. And when it's not calibrated, you wind up with, well, a large crowd amassing at your state capital demanding, yeah. oh my goodness, demanding, you know, a, a, a vote that found no evidence of fraud being overturned. You have you have Donald Trump demanding that Mike Pence not certify the election, even though the vice president doesn't have the authority to certify elections. I don't I like that's not even a thing that he could do, let alone a thing that he should do. Imagine this scenario, okay? Let's just say that all of the people that were in, you know, that that organized this this revolt, imagine if they had just asked themselves, you know, or at least half of them asked themselves, wait a minute, um, this went through like a hundred courts and it was rejected. Wait a minute, the vice president disagrees with the president. If they had just asked some of those critical thinking questions, they would have realized oh, it seems our president is emotionally volatile right now. Let's not listen to him, right? And it's just, it's just that simple. It's, just, it's a critical thinking question that would have just emerged of like, it seems like the president's cabinet isn't listening to him right now. It seems like several courts have said that they're not listening to him. It seems like half the Republicans don't believe there's any credence to this uh, election stealing business. If they had just asked those critical thinking questions, they never would have showed up for any DC rally whatsoever, man. And it's just, it, it's really just that simple. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it would have been, it would be nice. Right. Um, our country is currently going through a lot of turmoil, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of what about ism, which is like my least favorite political tool where, you know, someone's like, you know, this is bad. And it's like, yeah, well, you guys did this and it's also bad. And then that's the end of the discussion. How is that the end of the discussion? <laughs> Nothing got resolved, right? It's um, a lot of finger pointing. I, this, this is kind of like, in my opinion, especially if we look historically at how things went in ancient Rome, if we look how things historically went in, in, um, you know, early, early, modernity Russia, early modernity Italy. Um, this is how like democracy dies. Like not to, you know, to quote Star Wars, um, democracy, <laughs> <laughs> this is how democracy dies with thunderous applause. Well, that's not exactly true. It, it dies when 
polite discourse breaks down and people people kind of notice like okay this is i don't want to talk with you anymore i i don't want to hear what you have to say i've heard enough of your side i'm going to do whatever it takes to get my my perspective out yes i i i love the way you just sum that up i think democracy does die brett when polite discourse ends i love that i i think i think that's uh, that, that's that's amazing because even if our senators and our Congress people, even if they're not violent, they're not really polite to one another. And I think that is actually a, a corrosive element of our democracy is just not being polite. Like, uh, you know, Senator Cruz or Senator, uh, uh, Senator Sanders, you know, I respectfully disagree with your idea on blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, right. It's like, that's the important thing. You don't have to agree with Ted Cruz. You don't have to agree with Bernie Sanders. You speak to them with eloquence and grace speak with them on the on the merits of the points that they are making and that's but we don't have that anymore we have them as just we just have these congress people slamming one another in the most vile and and the most egregious of ways and it's no wonder that that kind of spills into violence when we look at the the general american populace brett we haven't answered every question, but I think I think this is a good start, my friend. Thank you so much um, for 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 just you know brainstorming with me out here. Oh yeah, thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's always a pleasure. This concludes the hundred and fifth episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod. <laughs>